Welcome back to MERS Monday. For more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. Last week, the governor proposed an $80.7 billion state budget to lawmakers, including a suggestion to withhold $670 million in intended public school retirement debt payments to be spent on other things. The team is joined by research director Craig Thiel and senior research associate Robert Schneider of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan to discuss the governor's recommendations. Also, President Justin Winslow of the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association explains why his group wants the Pure Michigan Tourism Campaign infused with $50 million this budget-making season. President Tony Poole of the Document Security Alliance explains how counterfeit driver's licenses, or fake IDs, contribute to more than $250 billion in annual losses to American governments and citizens. Now, here's MERS podcast host Samantha Schreiber, editor Kyle Malin, and for the third segment, administrative reporter Andrew Miniger. Thank you so much, Jeff Smith, for kicking off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. He is filling in for Mark Bayshore, our usual producer. So I want to be completely honest with our listeners today. We are pre-recording our segments today on Friday, February 9th. This past week, the governor in Michigan presented her $80.7 billion executive budget proposal for the next fiscal year, fiscal year 2025. And this is an interesting moment for state budget makers here in Michigan. There is a noted state of economic stability right now, but the record high tax revenue surpluses and the federal COVID-19 recovery money is majorly gone. And amid this lack in extra resources, there is a sense of urgency among policymakers on how do they make our state more attractive? How do we incentivize industries that help Michigan diversify its economy beyond its auto industry roots? Uh, how does the state make young people more interested in staying here after obtaining degree? And how does the state deliver continual road improvements while awaiting a $3.9 billion revenue shortfall when it comes to road improvement bucks? Kyle, am I missing anything? I feel like I, I dropped down a lot. You know, we are excited to talk about this. So excited. We had to talk about it a little bit early. And we are going to be joined by our friends at the Citizens Research Council of Michigan. Uh, we have CRC Research Director Craig Thiel. Hey, Craig, how are you? Good morning. Glad to be here. And one of my personal go-to finance experts for my stories, CRC Senior Research Associate Robert Schneider, the former Associate Director of the Michigan House Fiscal Agency. Hey, Robert, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Samantha. Thank you. Now, I'm going to start off with a holiday-themed question, just because this episode's going to air on the week of Valentine's Day. Who do you think, based off of looking at this executive proposal, who do you think is the governor's Valentine this budget-making season? Greg, you want to mention K-12? or I was going to go community colleges. I think yeah. that's where I was going to go. Yeah. They, they seem to get a lot of love because it seems like a long-term relationship she's trying to establish there. I, I'd agree with you on that, Kyle. I'd also say that this governor and governors before her have put K through 12 education as a high priority. This governor certainly has done that. And given the return to normal in terms of the, the budgeting that we're, we're looking at, 
She's definitely gone outside the box to try to direct resources to the K through 12 system to the greatest extent she's she's able to. So I'd I'd give her hug me Valentine to the K through 12 community. You know, I think who's getting the the chocolate sundae here for Valentine's Day, I think it's childcare workers and I think it's early education providers. I know that the governor wants to create a system where pre-K is a part of that essential necessary education conversation. But the issue with that plan is that there's just not enough people to do that work. It's kind of viewed as a scarce resource, which makes it more expensive. So I think things like her proposed $60 million from the general fund for a child care benefits pilot program dedicated to offsetting the personal child care costs of child care workers. I think things like that, I think it's going to be child care early education providers who are get some Valentine's sweet. How about you, Bob? What are you thinking? I think, you know, I, I do think between the community colleges and the, in that, uh, in that new kind of community college promise in K-12, I, I think both have done well. On the general fund side, I, I think nothing jumps out at me, uh, you know, in, in terms of who the Valentine would be, I guess. Probably a, a lot for childcare. And one thing, one thing in the budget that I think is, um, was a really good move and, and maybe they got a Valentine, low-income families in the state. We've written about it in the past. The state gets a block grant, a temporary assistance for needy families block grant that is uh, that, you know, historically has gone to social welfare supports for low income families. Um, For a long time, Michigan has redirected much of that block grant to uh, to things that aren't direct supports to low-income families, college scholarships being one of them. This budget took at least the first step in redirecting that money back to the, the state's cash assistance program, which is a shell of what it was you know, 20 years ago. The first significant increase in that program for low-income families in quite some time, some funding for emergency assistance for, for low-income families and childcare. There's some of it was redirected to childcare. That's a, uh, I think that's a positive move to use the state's uh, Tanif more appropriately in, in my mind. So maybe they're maybe they're a Valentine too. Uh, you know, on your Valentine though, Samantha, I, I kind of agree with what you're saying there. That I think the question is is whether the governor is going to be fine using private contractors then to cover this need in pre-K education. I mean, the expanding the pool of families who can take advantage of free four-year-old preschool. That comes at a cost. Are the school districts going to be in a position to offer that type of service, especially in rural areas, or are they going to have to contract out? Is the state going to be comfortable with contracting out that service? Because you have to think that maybe a um, least a, a slight motivation, if not a, you know, a benefit to this for the MEA and and other education unions is that if the public school is offering now this four-year-old preschool, that expands the numbers of members that they could have because now you have these four-year-old preschool teachers now in the school districts. But are the school districts in a position to actually offer that? Do they have the space for the room? Do they have the teachers or, or the the talent who can actually provide that? Or will the state be comfortable in providing like private people doing that four-year-old preschool? That's what I'm going to be looking for. I think it's something that I want to ask too, is that when you saw this executive budget recommendation, what do you think is the heaviest lift here? What do you think is like a, oh, it's going to be interesting to see them try to get this done, but I don't know if it's actually going to happen. 
Well, I've been looking at this proposal to redirect some of the money that's currently going to pay off the MIPSERS. This is the public school employee retirement system. There's two components here to the long-term debt that this system has. There's the piece tied to pensions, and then there's the piece tied to the health care that's promised to retirees. And we're far from paying off the, the pension component, but the state, I should say, will have fully funded the unfunded liability, the retiree health care, as of the end of the fiscal 2023. That's the estimation. And so by paying that off, the governor has asked for some relief from the statute that governs this, these payoffs and to differentiate the two components here, the pension payoff and the OPEB payoff. She needs the statutory lift to, to do this. She'll probably have the votes to do this, but there are folks who say, and the law says, until we fully paid off all the debts of MIPSERS, we're not going to reduce the state contribution to paying off those debts. So we'll just speed up paying off the pension debts. So that's going to be a debate about paying off debt early versus spending those dollars today. And I think there's going to be some difference of opinions both across partisan lines, but also across people who are thinking we should pay off our debt sooner to safeguard the pensions and the retiree health benefits of our teachers who've been basically the largest creditors to the state as the state has underfunded these benefits over time. So we have seen the MEA come out in support of this proposal. I'm sure the retired teachers of the state may not be fully supportive of that because, again, those benefits aren't fully funded right now. So that may pose a risk as far as this budget goes, because those dollars that are freed up in the governor's proposal then go back into paying for a portion of the foundation increase and a piece of the increase in the at-risk funding and a piece of the universal pre-K expansion that she has planned here. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, Craig. That was where my mind was going. What about you, Bob? What do you think? So I, I think one of the interesting you know, watch points in, in budget deliberations, her proposed budget has some significant uh, increases for business attraction uh, type programs, uh, an R&D tax credit, additional funding for business attraction, some money for site development costs. Those aren't sore. That's, that's not the same as the SOAR fund contributions, but with slim margins, um, I, I'm wondering whether there'll be some fatigue in continuing to spend state money on what some would call, and these programs are different, um, and, and you can make a policy argument that they're good programs, whether uh, the votes will be there to, to uh, continue to grow money in that business attraction area that uh, you know some would call corporate welfare. The tipping fees will, will be interesting too. The, the tipping fee proposal is very much like what Governor Snyder proposed, I don't know, eight or 10 years ago, and, and uh, he ran into trouble with his Republican legislature. The business community, I'm sure, will lobby hard against it. And again, once we have elections and, and, and the Democrats have a, a majority, again, in both chambers, it'll be a slim majority. So we'll, we'll see where some of that politically sensitive stuff goes. 
I, I'm very interested to see what the philosophical debate looks like around going back to what we were talking about with the MIPSERS payments. The MIPSER debt won't be fully funded until 2038. And by basically redirecting this $670 million, which would require a statutory change, I think we're going to see a conversation of what's more important. Is it using money that is technically available right now to pay for things that are needed immediately? Or is it more important to pay off as much debt as possible? So maybe instead of waiting until 2038, we can maybe even bring that up sooner. That could be a possibility. I'm interested to see that philosophical divide that occurs in the state legislature. I also kind of echoing off of what you said, Bob, talking about the innovation fund that the governor wants. The $60 million for an innovation fund that would basically invest into high-growth startups in our state. This could be anything from a unique outdoor recreation community that helps people explore northern Michigan or maybe a healthcare entrepreneur who wants to go into the biotech space of a brand new idea. I'm curious to see if behind closed doors... Will that fund have pre-selected recipients? And I think that's been an issue that we've seen with budgets, that a massive budget comes out and there is 200 plus economic development grant recipients that have already been chosen. And these are no longer a competitive grant, but something where the winners are already selected. Uh, is that something that we're going to see this fund be subjected to? So, uh, and again, the the uh, there'll be more details coming out on that, I, I would suspect over time. But based on what I read about the, uh, about the innovation fund, you know, it, it, the, the design is to try to bring in, and, and it would probably be only three or four uh, kind of like venture capital firms to come into this state. And then they would be the decision makers on the projects that that, that get funded. But the, you know, I think the design of the program, you know, is we do a, a whole ton of research and development. We have great research universities in this state and a ton of research and development happens in Michigan. Too often, at least in the mind of folks who, you know, want the Michigan economy to grow, the commercialization and the business startups that come out of that R&D go somewhere else. And they may be one chasing talent. We were talking about talent a moment ago, but often they're also chasing capital. And so the idea would be to bring that here and help incentivize venture capital firms to come into Michigan and, you know, and help kickstart high tech startups here in Michigan rather than out in the Silicon Valley or in Austin or Boston or someplace like that. Um, I got a question that I wanted to ask. I don't know if you have this, Craig or Bob, I don't know who has this, but the governor had said during the state of the state that she'd taken care of $18 billion in debt since she's been in office. That seemed like a startling number to me. Uh, and then during the budget presentation, it seemed like that got inflated to $22 billion that she took care of. Have you all been able to to run the numbers on that? Is, is that accurate? And how did how did she do that? That seems like a crazy number to take care of. Yeah, I've not seen the details of that. Uh, it did catch my ear as well during the speech a couple weeks ago. I immediately went to the Mipser's history tables and clearly the unfunded liability of the retiree health in Mipser's has come down substantially in her time. As I pointed out, it'll it's projected to be eliminated at the end of when they come out with the, the next report from Mipser's covering the 2023 fiscal year. But, you know, when this governor took office, there was 
close to $8 billion of unfunded liabilities and MIPSERS that have been paid off for, for retiree health. The pension piece has basically been around $35 billion. So I was trying to reconcile the $18 billion debt payment with those observations I had, and I, I couldn't square it. And then I saw some reporting from another source that asked the governor's team about what the background on that statistic is. And it's basically debt payments. So not the retiring, the actual principal amount, but the amount that has paid towards principal payments, as well as all the interest payments that are made towards the system over this period of time. And we have, uh, the state has an annual obligation to pay MIPSERS above a certain amount, freeing the school districts from some of that burden. So I imagine when you add up all of those payments that the state is required to make during her first term and the beginning of her second term, that's how you come up with this number of $18 billion. But clearly, the total principal amount in the debt in, in MIPSERS does not that's been paid off doesn't come close to 18 billion. And then when you add in the fact that she's bonding out for more transportation projects, I wonder if overall the state's debt is more or less than it was when she took office. Sounds like a perfect uh, analytical <laughs> exercise for the CRC to take on in the next week or so, Kyle. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> I'm glad I was able to put that seed in your head. It also seems that there were kind of some more progressive grievances that came out of her executive proposal. People frustrated about there not being more unique housing ideas, um, people upset about there not being more in terms of transit. I don't really know how I want to ask this question, but ultimately, I mean, what do you think are going to be the future of those two issues this budget making season? Uh, housing and transit, things that get people very fired up and things that people talk about as being needs to better retain our population in Michigan. Right. So, I mean, on, on housing in particular, um, you know, the governor in her state of the state said she wants to spend $1.4 billion, I believe it was, to build uh, 10,000 housing units, a re rehab or or build uh, new, new housing. And again, we've been digging through this budget kind of page by page over the last couple of days. I, in this budget proposal, I didn't see anything that I could I could tie back to that. So I'm I'm going to assume more details are going to come out, or something else is going to be proposed on that. There's some small housing initiatives here and there, but when I looked for that big funding source, I don't see it yet. And so I, I'm going to assume you know something else is is forthcoming on that. So right now, I think that's still a question. Mark, you know, transit, the federal government helped us out recently, both on the roads and, and, and on public transit with increases in federal funding in, in that area. But right, this budget has budget always has a, a transit funding, but nothing dramatic. You know, if there's a question mark still, uh, you know, the biggest question mark, I think, in the, in the budget is, you know, what are we going to do uh, about roads once we use up the last of this three, the $3.5 billion bonding proposal? You know, that's going to come to an end. You know, we had, we have folks out there saying we need Samantha, I think you mentioned it, you know, through all close to $4 billion annually. And again, that in, in this budget, you know, there's some one-time money for roads, but nothing that gets us gets us close to that mark. So that's a, uh, there, there's been talk about vehicle miles traveled and changing the the, the funding formula. The, the problem, uh, just, just a real quick aside on road funding, the problem 
you know, for Michigan right now isn't so much the electric vehicles because electric vehicles pay a surcharge. And, and if you count that surcharge, they pay, if you own a purely electric vehicle, you pay about what a typical driver pays in the gasoline tax. And so the idea of changing the, the way we fund transportation may be a good idea. It's one worth debating. But the real question for this state is we need probably several billion dollars more for roads and we need to make a determination as to uh, as to how to get that, or that we're going to settle for the road, the trajectory, a road, uh, a road quality that we're you know that we're on right now. Yeah, and the governor did say on the record at her post presentation media availability, she is not introducing another gas tax increase this year. That will not be happening. Uh, but I am kind of curious to see what kind of like new avenues of road funding become a part of this budget-making conversation. Uh, something that happened 10 days ago that I'm surprised that not more people talked about, it was the Michigan Department of Transportation kicking off a road usage charge survey, uh, ultimately designed to figure out how Michigan drivers feel about the possibility of replacing the state's gas tax of other fees, like a miles traveled fee. Uh, so that is something that is happening, that people are being surveyed until March 1st. You can get a $10 gift card if you participate. Uh, so it, I, I mean, I am very curious to see if, you know, will we start to seriously have a conversation about road user fees and even toll roads this budget making season yeah i think that's a, a great question sam i'm almost i'm also curious what the dollar figure would be on uh, this idea to uh do a a type of rebate if you buy a new car one thousand dollars for any new car that would be purchased two thousand if it's an electric vehicle and then the extra 500 on top if it was assembled by union labor uh Bob, have you guys taken a look at that at all? How much that would end up costing? You know, I I have not seen those projections yet. They may be out there. It may just be that I I haven't pulled that I haven't pulled that number out yet. Um, there was, I mean, this was um, uh, last February, uh, something similar proposed. But uh, that's so. We have a webinar coming up, and we'll on uh, on. Tuesday the 20th at one o'clock. So if folks want to tune in, maybe we'll try to uh, be able to answer that by then, Kyle. Yeah, I was actually going to ask, because we are near the end of time here, but do you have anything more to say about the upcoming webinar the CRC has this month? Uh yeah, so we will be uh, we, we we will be holding our annual webinar again. It's Tuesday, February twentieth. It's going to start at one o'clock. You can register on our website, CRC. Uh, mich.org, crcmich.org. Click on events and you'll see where the registration is. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we're going to have a even better handle by that time on uh, on the long-term budget outlook, which still looks pretty decent on the general fund side, at least, but not like we, you know, the budget's changed. We, we, we've moved out of having billions available ongoing billions of one-time appropriations for the last uh, couple of years. Um, we've kind of, we've kind of reached the end of that. Uh, and, uh, you, you, uh, you said that at the beginning, Samantha, and you're correct. Um, you know, we're the budget, th this budget that was just proposed is pretty much 
uh, is mostly ongoing. It's 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 the budget that's going to be carried forward um, into the future, and we're kind of back to kind of a, a a return to normal revenue growth, which still looks healthy, but um, but, but we're not going to have these billions and in, in extra revenue to spend on an annual basis. February so. February twenty is when we're going to hold that. Isn't that your birthday, Sam? Yes, February twentieth is my birthday, so oh, I can. So this is gonna be a birthday of, celebration awesome. here on this webinar. How exciting is that? I can think of no better way to celebrate my twenty sixth birthday than a CRC webinar. So I'm freaking fired up. Yeah, the young people love it. We just have young people flock into our uh, to to our webinars. So. <laughs> you know, can I know that we're over time, but I just want to do a quick speed round super fast. If you had to describe this kickoff to budget making season with one adjective, what adjective are you choosing? Kyle, I'm pointing to you to kick things off. What's your uh, budget season adjective? Exhilarating. How about that? Craig. Anticipatory. Bob. I don't know if this is an adjective or not. Return to normalcy. Like, uh, we're, you know, we're, we're back where we usually are. I know what I want my adjective to be. I shouldn't have asked this. Oh, my I... gosh. You don't ask a question. You don't know what your answer is going to be, Sam. Come on now. <laughs> this is going to be more than one word, but I would say mellower than usual. I did feel as a reporter, I was a bit more calm during this governor's presentation than I had been uh, in 2022 and 2023. So I think it's going to be mellower in terms of kind of what Bob said, a back to normal presence. But also, like, I think there is no longer that intensity of we only have this federal money once and we have to make sure we spend it in a on a once in a lifetime investment. I think that type of uh, demand is kind of lifted a bit, if that is fair to say. And it yeah. ain't like 2019 either when um, the government darn near shut down and the uh, governor vetoed a bunch of stuff and went through the ad board and we had a constitutional crisis practically. So calmer is probably a good adjective. Everybody, that is Bob Schneider and Craig Thiel of the Michigan Citizens Research Council. Thank you so much for coming on to help us kick off the start to budget making season. Yeah. Good to be here. Thanks. For our second segment of the MERS Monday podcast is Justin Winslow, the president and the chief executive officer of the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association. He is with us today specifically because his association, in collaboration with the Michigan Travel Commission, has established a brand new, first of its kind, Michigan Hospitality and Tourism Alliance, which is advocating for a $50 million infusion into the Pure Michigan market marketing campaign this budget making season. Hi, Justin. How are you doing today? Fantastic, Samantha. Thanks for the opportunity. This is exciting for the MRLA. I think this completes our media bingo card. We've been eagerly awaiting the opportunity to be on uh, the podcast with you and Kyle. So thanks for the invite. Well, we're so happy to have you on. Just to kind of kick off this conversation, can you tell me about why your association decided to establish this alliance? Uh, why does that matter right now? What is your battle? Well, I certainly don't want to take all of the credit from our perspective. We are one organization with a membership that is deeply concerned with the trend lines and where Pure Michigan has gone as a campaign the last couple years. And so we have stake in the game, but there's been a lot of active conversation by the founding members of this organization that all are trying to find a clear way 
a unified way to speak more forcefully on behalf of our industry to make sure that we're, we're being heard. What do you think have been the major Achilles heels of the Pure Michigan campaign in recent years? I mean, I think the campaign itself is still gangbusters. It's still the, the preeminent campaign nationally. I just got back from a national uh, conference uh, of all these hotel associations who still believe that Pure Michigan is the gold standard, that they wish that their own state campaigns were up to the same standard. These states, however, are operating with apparently their substandard campaigns, but at, at dramatically higher rates than we're getting in Michigan these days, right? Our competitor to just to the west of us, Wisconsin, with $67 million dollars. They, they really went all in using some federal supplemental dollars to make sure their tourism campaign was well-funded. Uh, Minnesota, well over $40 million as well. And so these are our regional competitors uh, and they're eating our lunch right now. And we needed to find a way to better make the case that Pure Michigan is great and it produces great ROI. Uh, we need elected le uh, officials to feel the same way. Can we give our listeners a little bit of a background on how much the Snyder administration put into Pure Michigan annually? and where we're at right now in this 2025 budget. Governor Snyder, to a lot of people's surprise, really became enamored with the Pure Michigan campaign and increased it incrementally every year that he was governor uh, to the point where we were just shy of $40 million when he left office. And we're at a point where the current fiscal year and the one that would start October 1st, based on the governor's recommendation, has Pure Michigan at 15. One five million dollars. That's a dramatic drop off, and I think the industry is starting to feel the pinch of, of that drop off. Are you saying that tourism is down in Northern Michigan? Well, I, hey, this is not just a Northern Michigan campaign. You see, Visit Detroit is a founding member of this. They are very touchy about Pure Michigan being everywhere in Michigan, not just Northern. Uh, but you're starting to see things uh, ease up a little bit, and that all critical Chicago market uh, into Michigan has some new competition for where where it's. Uh, where its eyeballs are, are seeing and where its uh, people are going to start going, Wisconsin and Minnesota being competitors here. So that's concern. And I think you drop down to 15 million, you lose the national buys that really bring in people like Texas, which Texas in the summer, people are looking to flee. Michigan has been a great uh, place for them to go. They're starting to see some more advertisement elsewhere as well. So let's look at last summer, summer 2023. What were the biggest obstacles for your members? What were the biggest grievances? Well, I think that they feel like we're leaving some opportunity on the, on the table, right? We had a, a gangbusters, there was so much pent up demand from uh, the early pandemic when people weren't really either allowed to travel or once they were allowed, many people just not feeling safe to. So by the time people really started going, travel was insane, right? And we did not have the workforce to meet that travel demand. But now they're getting to the point where they feel like they've got an infrastructure in place that's uh, that works for them and are concerned that we might not have the demand to meet that full infrastructure this year. And given the size and the scope of this industry, what it means to Michigan's economy overall, I think a bigger investment here is going to produce a pretty good return on that investment for, for Michigan taxpayers. So are you saying that we went from a scenario where there was too much demand right after the pandemic and not enough infrastructure, not enough workers, not enough resources. And now it's vice versa, where there is too much infrastructure and you're afraid about demand going into this next big travel season. Yeah, I don't want to get into the heavy PTSD of going all the way back into the pandemic too much. But that was the challenge, right? We were closed for a while. People who worked in this industry started to find work in other industries. And we are still below, right? This industry, leisure and hospitality, which is restaurant and hotel workers, and resort workers is still smaller than it was pre-pandemic. That's not true in most states, but it is true in Michigan. But it's to the point where that was a crisis point early on, 
in terms of not having enough workers, we are we are back to a point where we are meeting demand and the concern is actually, you're right, Samantha, flipping where uh, we might have too much supply for, for the demand that's there. And we know that there could and should be more demand coming into Michigan. Justin, what are you hearing from your members on the um, availability of housing uh, for its workers up in northern Michigan? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a challenge. Workforce housing is a challenge everywhere. We did a member-wide poll uh, about a year ago, and this was statewide. So not just the Traverse City dominant areas you know are concerns, but 68% of our members statewide said that they have genuine concern that there is not adequate uh, affordable housing for them. So that is suburbs of Detroit, that's Grand Rapids. And you see it most acutely in, in these smaller tourism destinations in Northern Michigan, like Traverse City, Mackinac Island, um, the Petoskey area, but it's a statewide problem right now and something that we are part, want to be part of the solution to create here, but it's, it's, it's a challenge. But could you imagine that there could be some aggravation toward this $50 million extra dollar proposal that your organization has? Uh, someone might say, why do we need to give Pure Michigan more money when what we want is more money for the residents that we do have so that they can afford housing, that they can have transit options? Uh, how, what is your battle strategy for going into those types of arguments and cases? I would make this argument. Right now, travel and tourism brings in $3.2 billion dollars uh, in state and local tax revenue. And that is that is with $11 coming in back to the state for every dollar we spend on the Pure Michigan campaign. We are not anywhere near that inflection point where that starts to drop. So if we're going to invest more in that campaign, you're going to generate more taxable revenue from outsiders, people who do not live in Michigan, meaning the tax base is expanded without with a lower hit on actual Michigan residents. I think that's a win-win. We've talked about uh, in the past how Governor Snyder had put 30 $40 million into Pure Michigan, one could make the argument that if those ads connected and people came here and they enjoyed their experience, they would just keep coming back and you don't need to continue to advertise. And so those mon that money can go elsewhere. And if you weren't able to connect with them in 2017 or 2018, why would you connect with them in 2024? There's so much competition out there, Kyle, for our attention, right? I mean, it, there's there's 100% saturation of, of McDonald's, who is aware of McDonald's and what its menu is, but it doesn't stop them from hitting you every single day of the week with more advertisements to be fresh and top of mind to get you to go back there. People do not have to spend their travel dollar here. We need to remind them why it's the best case for them to spend their travel dollar here. So what are some new destinations or some new members that you would want to see highlighted and celebrated in a revamped campaign? That's a great point. I think that we are a long way from reaching the saturation point of the Upper Peninsula. There is a, a majesty to it and a fascination with it because uh, it feels wild and separate from what we always are dealing with, maybe uh, on a day-to-day -day basis around here. And it has natural beauty that uh, you can't match in almost anywhere else, right? And, and Lake Superior is is the superior of all of the lakes. So uh, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to grow travel and tourism. And there's a, a lot of great leaders in the Upper Peninsula right now building infrastructure and building that opportunity. Last year, the state of Michigan uh, started to phase away from using Tim Allen and those pure Michigan ads and tried to connect with younger audiences. Do you feel like that's worked? Have you seen any evidence to say that that's been successful? I think they're really good. I have not seen evidence definitively showing that we're the cutoff point of new speakers uh, and whether or not that's that's turned a tide or generating more ROI, um, but mostly positive returns is what I'm hearing. 
But was it time, do you think, to move away from Tim Allen? I mean, we've been using him for better than a decade, I think. Uh, was it time for something fresh? I, I don't think it's a bad idea to keep it fresh, right? You have the brand and you know the brand works. It doesn't require necessarily Tim's voice. I also don't think we have to pick and choose definitively all in or all in or all out, right? I think there could be a scenario where you're where you're mixing him in back and forth because nostalgia sells sometimes too, but you also want to see some fresh faces and some fresh voices uh, creating some new opportunities. So it's not my decision to be making exactly there, but to me, it's not an, an all in or all out. What would you say are some tourism gems in Michigan that are the most underlooked underrated that you would like to see get a spotlight you know rather that be a trip that you recently took and you're like oh my gosh this was freaking phenomenal but nobody knows about it yeah i'm torn man because i don't want to give away we have a place that is our favorite and we go every year it, it is uh, our family's go-to place we just booked a campsite uh, and it's a it's a very small town of the UP called Grand Marais. Easter is just on the eastern uh, uh, side of the National Lakeshore. It is unbelievably beautiful. Has the energy almost of like a chill California coastal town because it's very laid back. But uh, I love the energy there. And it's you're right next to all kinds of natural beauty. Okay, now I want to follow up with a different question here. I'm not going to ask where your favorite restaurant is. I'm going to ask you, what new restaurant have you visited recently that you've never visited before really caught you by surprise? Well, listen, I, the, the one I would say locally, I, I've been to Toscana now. Uh, it took me a little while to finally get there. Uh, and uh, the restaurant you're hearing a lot of people talking about in Lansing uh, is doing a great job. Uh, you know, it always we always have that that line around here. So, oh, there's a great new restaurant opening. So which one had to close? Because it always feels like it's one in, one out. I am hoping that uh, Toscana is part of a renaissance that builds some more in, but they're doing a nice job. You know, to that point, you know, we we see in the, the Lansing State Journal has kind of started this restaurants in, restaurant out kind of feature and, and people seem to like it. They like to know. And it seems like the restaurants that go out by and large are kind of family owned kind of icons. And, and here in Lansing, you know, DeLuca's is right around the corner from where I live. And so that's top of mind. But is that is that common in the restaurant industry that when a family decides, you know what, uh, we're good. Nobody wants to seem to buy it. Nobody wants to pick up on that brand. And so it just kind of goes away. Yeah, I think the family restaurant is getting squeezed. The industry is getting squeezed right now overall. They, the, the pandemic was obviously a challenge and coming out of it, uh, people came back in large numbers, but the ability to make profit, you know, to be profitable as a restaurant shrunk tremendously because costs jumped so fast in both wages and uh, food costs that it was really hard to keep your business flowing in a, in a positive way. And it's getting pinched right now post-pandemic between the higher end experience type restaurants where you're going to pay a premium for that and a more convenient side of the equation. What can I get that's really fast? Uh, still can be good, but I can get uh, on the go and, and get real quickly. That, that, that convenience versus experience. And if you're in the middle somewhere, that's where you're getting, you're, you're getting squeezed. And that's where a lot of family restaurants find themselves. So Concerning to me, because independent restaurants, if we lose that, we're losing a lot of the uh, authentic experience we get anywhere in any small town we're in. You know, I think often on this podcast, we express some grievances about social media and concerns of misinformation and et cetera. But one thing I do love about social media is foodie influencer culture. 
all of the different restaurants that people are showcasing off of their iPhones. Do you think that Pure Michigan, maybe their future strategy should be tapping into these influencers? Should they modernize their game plan to be kind of more influencer focused? Could that be something that is an idea on the table? It's a really good idea. And I'm old enough to remember when we had some ad grants for culinary tourism a decade plus ago. Uh, and that those dried up. And I thought that they actually helped build something that should be carried forward. And yeah, I think I think that there's unmet demand there too. So culinary tourism is, is, is worthy of some more investment. How do you think Michigan is with those kind of unique restaurants, those tourism spots compared to, to other states? It seems like we do pretty well with those kind of establishments. We have, not to get too data heavy, we, uh, we have a higher percentage of independent restaurants as a percentage of all restaurants uh, compared to the national average. And, and you're right. You're, we talked about family member, family restaurants getting squeezed, but they're still doing well. And there are a lot of great independents, especially in small towns. Immediately coming to mind is the Legs Inn, uh, matching small independent family restaurant with Polish flair, but absolutely a tourist destination in northern Michigan. I mean, that's the whole reason you go to Cross Village, isn't it? Yeah, he's, it's amazing when he talks about his workforce up there. And the village is is a population of in the hundreds. Uh, and he'll have days in the summer where they'll have five, 6,000 people going through that restaurant. And it is it can be a challenge for him. But he, he works with what are called J-1 visas. He literally has Polish students coming over because it's a Polish-themed restaurant. They're a Polish family coming over to help make that uh, make that work. Now, could you just reiterate for us, so you're asking for $50 million more into the Pure Michigan campaign. Uh, what, what what would that bring the value up to? We're looking for $50 million total. Right now, the proposal on the table is 15. Sometimes these sound so similar. It's very confusing, right? 15 has been, has been proposed by uh, the governor this week. Uh, we've already started having some conversations with legislators that 50 puts us in the game to compete with uh, our surrounding states. And is at a point where you don't start to see diminishing returns for the investment from the state. So uh, we think that's the short term answer. Let's find a way collaboratively to get to 50. And then long term, let's all work together, both sides of the aisle and find a more stable funding source for Pure Michigan. So we're not having a general fund discussion every year forevermore. I guarantee you no one wants that. The uh, the last question that I had it goes back to the pandemic. And, and maybe you said this stat and I missed it, but where are we at? from the pandemic as far as uh, restaurants lost pre-pandemic? We are we are to the net positive now from where we oh. were before, which is great, which is great news because we had one of the deepest fallouts early on in the recession. Uh, there's a great Axio story I was looking at the other day that shows net, net negative or net positive restaurant growth in every state in the country. If you look at Michigan, though, in our region, we've got the slowest restaurant uh, growth of any of our surrounding states. So there's work to be done to try to find more opportunity there. I have a hunch it's tied to some of the population discussion we're having here as well. But, uh, you know, we have grown. That's a good sign. We're just not growing as fast as uh, our surrounding states. I'm sorry. I got one one thing here. This is too local. And if it's too local, I, I apologize in advance. On the West Side neighborhood, um, an icon for years was the Irish pub. And uh, we see that uh, the Irish pub is, is uh, getting renovated after like, it must be like 10 years that thing has sat vacant. Do you know anything about when it's going to finally open so we can get that restaurant back? I don't have a specific date. I'm, I'm hoping it's soon. I've heard positive things. I mean, Kyle, that's where, when I was a younger staffer, we always did trivia night. Like that was yeah, yeah. every Thursday. Uh, you knew you were going to find us uh, at that place. So I'm happy to see it's coming back. 
It's been a little slower than all of us would like. We've had that same issue with Bobcat Bonnie's taking a little longer uh, over on Michigan Avenue as well to come in and, and, and open its doors. So uh, hopefully good things come to those who wait. What are some policies that you're concerned about, that your industry is concerned about in 2024? That is a loaded question. Do we have another four hours? There's, I mean, there's a lot of threats to this industry at all time, right? There's always, I think people who operate in this industry seem to operate with a sense of eternal optimism and that hope springs eternal, uh, but it's not it's not for lack of challenges that they're dealing with on every given day. I think there's some of the some labor challenges that that exist out there uh, and labor regulation issues. One thing we're still waiting on the restaurant side is to understand whether tip minimum wage, something critical to how restaurants operate in this day, will continue to operate in that way. 43 states do. We'd like to continue to be one of them because servers are making about $29 an hour on average right now in Michigan. Pretty good. Uh, to eliminate the tip credit, tip minimum wage actually decreases their opportunity and lowers the ceiling of wages they're going to uh, they're going to make. Something we're watching closely, but we're kind of waiting still on the Michigan Supreme Court to see where they end up landing on. And we're not going to go into all the detail here, but all the way back to a 2018 issue. When you think about the conversation about possibly charging motels and hotels more in taxes in order to use that revenue for tourism attractions in a municipality, uh, what are your thoughts on that general idea? I, I think the industry is open to having that conversation. I think the real concern around the industry right now is, is they view hotels in particular as a cash cow. They view that there's a great way to tax hotels and let's just spread that revenue to anywhere we want to fill general purposes there's a real concern that that is a trend line that we don't want to see happening. But if, if there is a way to capture and keep and, uh, and advertise or market on behalf of the industry to draw more people in, again, having outsiders pay our tax bill as opposed to Michiganders is, is something we all should be interested in, is something that they're open to. And then I think my final question is, is what would you say is the coolest hotel in Michigan that you would like to give a flashlight to? Man, it's really hard. You know, I'm going to get for, for the one person I'm going to praise, I'm going to get 15 calls about how I did not mention someone else. But I will mention this because it is unique. It's winning a lot of awards. It's independent and it fits the theme of what we've been talking a lot about the UP, the Vault Hotel, all the way out in Houghton. It's about eight hours from here uh, in the western, in the Keweenaw Peninsula, the UP is so cool and it, it is worth the trip and worth the expense. Uh, it, they reimagined an old bank, a 19th century bank in Houghton, turned it into an independent but kind of luxury hotel. It's very cool. They have a world-class speakeasy in the, in the basement. I've been winning some national awards. I think I've had the best cocktail in my life at that place. So if you find yourself even in the general vicinity uh, of Houghton, you know, Marquette's about an hour 45, two hours away. I, I would give that one a shout. And they're moving into opening one in uh, Marquette as well. So maybe you have a, an opportunity to get one a little closer. Honestly, now I'm brainstorming. I want to do a podcast segment that's all about culinary tourism. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm happy to come back and support or at least put you in touch with the right people. Oh, my goodness. I think that'd be so cool. But everybody, that is Justin Winslow, the president and chief executive officer of the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association. Thank you so much for joining us on the Merce Monday podcast. Thanks for the time, Samantha. Thanks, Kyle, as always. Leave our worries behind. End up somewhere extraordinary. Make good use of our time. Can't let life pass us by. 
I am super excited for our final segment of the MERS Monday podcast, where we are joined by Tony Poole, president of the Document Security Alliance, DSA, which is raising awareness around the issue of state-issued IDs being counterfeited, resulting in large-scale increases in identity theft and fraud losses. Specifically, the DSA has calculated that counterfeit driver's licenses are linked to $250 billion, billion for B, in annual financial losses to governments and citizens, worth an annual cost of $1,000 for every adult in the United States. Uh, Counterfeit IDs, or fake IDs, result in more than $61.9 billion being spent on underage drinking, $174 billion being lost to counterterrorism issues, and more than $4 billion being lost to check and bank fraud. Uh, Tony, again, thank you so much for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast. We met at the National Conference of State Legislature's uh, August 2023 summit. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about your association and also kind of clarify what some of these numbers I just listed actually mean? Happily. And first of all, Sam, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here and delighted to talk about a topic that uh, gets me up every morning because it's very, very important. First of all, for DSA, uh, DSA was founded just after 9-11 at the behest of the United States Secret Service. At that time, government was seeking to understand the fingerprints that were left by the printers used by the hijackers to counterfeit driver's licenses. And that precipitated a discussion with industry to really collaborate to determine what the sources were of those of those documents. This led to an organization being formed, now called DSA, originally founded as the Document Security Alliance. Really forward to today, DSA is made up of over 100 organizations from government, industry, and academia that share a common concern and a common mission to addressing the issues around counterfeiting of identity documents and, for that matter, currency as well. As an organization, we promote the use of counterfeit deterrent features. We facilitate public-private sector collaboration. We advocate for the resources or for additional resources to increase driver's license security. And we advance education about the dangers of fake IDs. The numbers that you mentioned, Sam, are are staggering, and it's important to point out that counterfeiting is a contributing factor to those numbers. It's not the sole contributing factor. It is one of a number of contributing factors that cause us to, to highlight the losses that we as a country are facing. As an example, we as a country spend a hundreds of millions of dollars a year in counterterrorism. While counterfeiting of documents is certainly not a the sole factor relating to, to terrorist activities around the around the world, it's important to point out that the major terrorist activities that have occurred over the last 20 years have all been precipitated using a fake ID, whether it's used to board an airplane or rent a car uh, or or make purchases of of weapons. Counterfeit IDs are part of that mix and something that makes them a contributing factor to that expense. As far as the the other expenses that you mentioned, whether it's uh, underage drinking, counterfeit uh, licenses are used by people that in the sort of 15 to age 15 to 20 category to purchase alcohol, which contributes to, to deaths on the road and to costs that we all bear. A very interesting one is something called returns good fraud where individuals will steal items from a store uh, and they will return them to the store without a receipt 
but present a fake ID, in which case they are given a, whether it's a credit or, or a refund of some, some fashion for those goods. So that fake IDs are used in multiple, multiple different cases to precipitate a crime. And it's something that we as an organization are very, very concerned about and want to make sure that we as a nation address this going forward. I I think one thing that's kind of interesting about this conversation is also the sort of normalcy of fake IDs in the college culture of America uh, and the underage drinking culture of this country. And I currently have the Hawaii McLovin fake ID pulled up in front of me in my computer right now. But one one thing that we had talked about when we initially met Tony is the issue of young people purchasing fake IDs, but that ultimately results in them having their identity stolen. And then they realize a couple years after that, after when they no longer need that fake ID, they're losing some of their own resources. Well, exactly. And, and that's a major concern. And one of the things that we are trying to educate people about, certainly acquiring a fake ID for underage drinking is, is one concern, uh, and that should concern people for a number of different reasons. But what people really don't realize is that the organizations in which they are purchasing those fake IDs from have a much larger mission. They are actually collecting information, personal information from each of those individuals that are acquiring a fake ID, and they're weaponizing that information down the road. Very interesting statistic is that in the state of New York, over 50%, or I think just about 50% of the individuals that applied for a fake ID had their identity stolen within a year. So this is something that is it's a lesser known problem but it's something that people need to be aware of. Another interesting statistic to keep in mind, Sam, is that the individuals that fall in the age category of 15 to 20, which are, t- are typically the, the age category that acquires a fake ID for underage drinking purposes, is actually about 4 million individuals per year. Those are individuals that actually purchase a fake ID over the internet for underage drinking purposes. If you were to multiply the average cost of a fake ID, which is around $100, $95, and you multiply it by $4 million, you come up with nearly $400 million a year in revenue that's gained by these organizations that are selling the fake IDs. I can tell you that with great confidence that the technology they're using to manufacture those fake IDs costs far less than $4 million, $400 million and that the additional money is being used for far more nefarious purposes. And that's something that we as a nation need to keep in mind. And when you think about this typical, let's say, 20-year-old who pays that $90 for a fake ID and then becomes subjected to identity theft, I mean, what does that expense look like on them? Well, I, I, I honestly don't know what the numbers are, but they're, they're significant and it takes a great deal of time. People who have their identity stolen have to go through an incredible process over multiple years to actually get their identity back. And in some cases, they don't. So there's the expenses involved in terms of dollar outlay, but also there's the expense of time and frustration that people have to go through, which is significant. So I do have to ask, uh, with all of this, uh, there obviously has to be some things that help every state kind of thwart having good fake IDs. And uh, I was wondering what the features are that each state could add to their identification that you would recommend that would help them thwart fake. Well, 
Andy, it's a very good question, but let, let me back up a little bit because every state has a different period of time in which their driver's licenses are valid. In some cases, it might be as few as five years, four or five years, and in other cases, it's in the teens. And one thing that we recommend is that every state consider issuing a new license every four to five years. And the reason we say that is it's really important to stay ahead of the counterfeiters. With each new issuance, increasing the complexity of the license and the security features that are used is very important. But you can't just put all your eggs in one basket and say we're done and not revisit the next design. In fact, what we recommend is that once a new design has been issued, you begin working on the next design and it's a continual process. During this conversation here, I can't recommend specific security features, but there are a number of advanced security features which the industry is very aware of that need to be brought into play. But the way to do that is for states to use a best value evaluation when they are sourcing their driver's licenses. Many states are put into a position where the cost of the license is the most important evaluation criteria when making a selection. And if you're driving industry to offer something at the lowest cost, typically what happens is that advanced security falls out of their solution. So the whole mechanism in which licenses are purchased needs to change. And states need to place a very important evaluation on the security of what's offered versus the prices what's offered. And, and you might think, well, I'm, I'm advocating that, that we pay a whole lot more money, and I'm not. Because the difference between a license that is okay might be a couple dollars or $1.50, and one that's really good might be $2.50. So we're talking about cents here, not dollars in terms of difference. But it's really important that states understand that it's not the low price that gets them what they need because of all the downstream costs that we're all bearing that Sam mentioned earlier. So you pay a little bit more up front and you save a whole lot more on the back end. So I know the the state, uh, the Michigan actually recently just redid it, but I don't think before that they had done it uh, for quite some time. Uh, you mentioned that it, it would be good to change it every four to five years. Are there any other recommendations to that that you could get outside of what, what you just gave? There's several things, Andy. One is that with every new license, there needs to be very clear and concise education conducted so that the individuals in every state understand what they're looking for. It's important that people understand how to validate that a license is indeed a legitimate license. So it's not only security, but it's education. And the other thing that needs to happen is that states need to be looking at what their enforcement mechanisms are related to uh, a counterfeit license that's seized. Is it simply a slap on the wrist or is there actually some penalties involved? Because if there are penalties involved, people will be less likely to acquire them. You talked about how DSA was ultimately born following 9-11 and how counterfeit IDs were utilized in that tragedy. Could you tell me a little bit about how technology has changed since then and how this type of technology has become more available since then? Absolutely. I mean, technology used to make counterfeit licenses is very different than today than it was when, when the three of us were back in college, as an example. What's used today or what's produced today is oftentimes more sophisticated or looks better than the actual licenses that are issued by states. So that is something that 
we need to keep in mind is that there is technology out there used by the counterfeiters, which simulates or emulates a legitimate license extremely well, which is why we need to continue to improve them to stay ahead of the, the counterfeiters. I've talked about the resources that they have. They're going to continue to improve their technologies to keep up. And so there's no resting on our laurels to we have to stay ahead of them. I mean, when you think about the average Joe, the average citizen, I mean, how hard is it for them to maybe purchase a high quality printer so that they can have their own counterfeit operation in their own living room? It's less likely uh, unless they, they have a lot of resources themselves. I mean, some of the equipment that's required to cost several thousand or tens of thousands of dollars. But when you're issuing the number of counterfeit licenses that some of these organizations do, they can amortize that cost quite easily. If you're just doing it in your living room, it's less likely to be a profitable venture. So, and that's the other important thing is that you're no longer going down the hall in your in your dorm room uh, or in your dorm to, to get a counterfeit license. You're actually sourcing it from somewhere overseas. Who are the most frequent consumers of these fake IDs? I know that we kind of talked about the college kid scenario of the fake ID, the McLovin. But I also kind of want to ask about, you know, who are kind of some of the other most common cases? Well, let, let's let's take a step back and look at the, the counterfeits that we have been able to estimate coming into this country. You know, when you have a, an age population of about 26 million people that fall into that 15 to 20 year old category, roughly 60% of them possess some sort of a false ID. That could be a lookalike, it could be a hand-me-down from an older brother or sister, or it could be an actual counterfeit. And 27% of those individuals actually possess an actual counterfeit source, primarily from overseas. That's what we see on the internet. What we don't know is what's being sourced on the dark net, because the dark net is just more difficult to, to fully understand. But individuals that are purchasing fake IDs for other than underage drinking are using them, sourcing them to purchase uh, guns. Uh, they may be uh, using them, as I said earlier, for committing crimes like returns good fraud. They may be doing them for identity theft. Any number of reasons that go beyond purchasing a drink. And uh, that's what we're, we're concerned about because it's, it's that unknown number of individuals that are purchasing fake IDs and what are they using them for that really concerns us. Now, I also know that the DSA has also talked about the role that counterfeit IDs have played in illegal immigration. Could you talk a little bit more about that subject? I can to a degree because people who are immigrating or illegally immigrating to this country in some cases will obtain a fake ID to be able to legitimize their being here. And it's relatively easy for them to do that. Just like if you're an underage person who's buying one for a drink, you can just as easily buy one to try to prove who you are. Uh, and that you're a resident of a certain state. Along with fake IDs are fake breeder documents, whether they be social security cards or birth certificates or any other document that they may need to obtain a, a higher level document, such as a passport. So have you guys tracked uh, what, what type of organizations are selling these fake IDs and uh, for what purpose? Where's the money going? If you all remember a carnival game called Whack-A-Mole, it's, it's, it's somewhat like Whack-A-Mole. These websites, they pop up. Uh, there was a very prominent case with an organization called ID Thief, where uh, U.S. Congress got involved and they had the, the website shut down. But the day after it shut down, other websites popped up. So that's the, the whack-a-mole analogy that I'm using here. 
Exactly who is running those sites is not known to us. We believe in many cases they could be state-sponsored, but that's where our enforcement folks are involved, and we're less involved as an organization. Fair to say there are some individuals or organizations behind these sites that are much more nefarious activities going on. When you look at where you're at right now with your research and with understanding and doing deep dives into this subject, does it seem like the issue is starting to get better or are we at a point where it's going to get worse before it gets better? It's definitely going to get worse before it gets better. And that's just the fact that we're dealing with here. Uh, we as a nation are we're a nation of 300 million plus individuals. We live in 50 different states, all of whom have different laws and different processes and different policies, all of whom do things the way they determine is the best for their own state. Yet these are issues that are impacting all of us and being able to get everybody on the same page and to get our public to understand the problems that are associated with this is a Herculean task and it's not going to happen overnight. But certainly an opportunity to talk with you all is one step in the right direction. Through this journey, when you dived into this issue, uh, what is a story that you've heard on your journey that has stuck with you the longest? Rather, it be a personal testimony, something that you witnessed. What is something that continues to scratch in your head as you continue to invest into this work? There, there are many stories, Sam, but I think the story that hits hardest for me or hits home for me the most is the 9-11 story. 9-11 is an event that impacted all of us in, in ways that are very, very difficult to, to describe, but, but we were all impacted. And, and living in Arlington, Virginia, just a couple miles from the Pentagon, I, I experienced it firsthand. And knowing that fake IDs were used to precipitate that horrific day is something that sticks with me every day and something that motivates us as an organization to do our best to change the way people view this and really try to drive security into our identification. Tony Poole, the president of DSA, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to join us on the MERS Monday podcast. And I am happy that we were able to reconnect after meeting back in this last summer. Well, Sam and Andy, thank you both very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. And that is going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. As I close out this episode, I have a few questions of the week for our listeners, which maybe can become a weekly thing if it goes smoothly. We shall see. Uh, but what is something you personally want to see at the forefront of this year's budget making conversation and season? Oh, so is it possible for a state budget to stitch together two very different conversations that are occurring right now? one in Lansing on a state of economic stability, and another one going on in individual households on financial frustrations and remaining challenges to pay for housing and groceries. As for thanking today's guest, I would like to express my tremendous gratitude toward Research Director Craig Thiel and Senior Research Associate Robert Schneider of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan, as well as to President Justin Winslow of the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association. Also, thank you to President Tony Poole of the Document Security Alliance, DSA, who joined us via Zoom from Arlington, Virginia. And of course, thank you so much to our editor, Kyle Malin, 
and our administrative reporter here at MERS, Andrew Miniker. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast was provided today by Jeff Smith, who's affiliated with Mark Bayshore Audio and Okemos, which is responsible for putting this audio together. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next time, I am Samantha Shriver. Me.